Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, are you a sports fan? Would you, would you categorize yourself as a sports fan? Well, I mean, <clears throat> the reason why my voice is like this today is directly related to me being a sports fan. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You were yelling at, at them to turn their game down or... No, no. I was uh, my uh, synchronized swimming team played ah. last night, and uh, fourth quarter it was getting pretty rough. And uh, Ethel Bixby just threw her shoulder out when she was trying to breach the water like a dolphin. Oh wow! It was intense, and uh, so that's just the, you know that's what happened. <laughs> I was like, go hammerheads. Go hammerheads. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I hear they're doing pretty good. Yeah, the hammerheads this year. Yeah, they're doing pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Well, sports fandom is one of those things. Uh, I, I have to confess, uh, I, I have never really gotten into team sports. And, uh, the rare occasions that I, I am pulled into, into sports at all, mm-hmm. it tends to be things that are, um, like one-on-one competition. Like I have in the past been sucked into some, uh, mano a mano. Yeah. Like I've been sucked into some tennis before. Mm-hmm. I found myself watching things like, um, like judo or uh, Korean sumo, I, I thought was pretty cool when I saw it once. Um, you know, these kind of things where it's like one one dude battling another dude or one gal battling another gal. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing is is about as close as I come to understanding. Because you're a sports. wrestling fan, right? Like with an uppercase F or uppercase. W. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I've, in the past, <laughs> I've and you know, in, in the current when I have time, I, yeah, I do watch the professional wrestling, and and that is not. It's hard to to exactly quantify. Its position in sport. I think it, it certainly exists outside of sports as this kind of sports drama um, scenario. So uh, okay. I, I don't really put that in the same uh, category. All right. So my question to you is: When you are watching wrestling, do you scream uh, so vehemently that like spittle comes out of your mouth? No, generally not. But I have I have actually not been to a real live event, or I haven't been to a, one of the bigger live events okay. yet. Uh, as of when this podcast publishes, I may have been because I may be going to uh, see the Muppets hosting Monday Night Raw in Atlanta with uh, Tech Stuff's <laughs> Jonathan Strickland. We will see if, if, if that comes to pass. Muppets wrestling. It's hey, the very first episode of the Muppet Show had professional wrestling in it. Did it? Yeah, of course. Look it up on YouTube. All right. But no, it's weird when when I'm watching pro wrestling because it's it's on one hand I have to have this sort of suspension of disbelief where I'm accepting the drama that is happening as real on some level in mm-hmm. the same way if I'm watching a movie, which I know is is acted out by by actors. Right. Um, uh, so on one level, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, the, this is the good guy. This is the bad guy. And I'm I'm, you know, trying to figure out the scenario that's taking place here. And then uh, on the other hand, there's a part of me that knows that this is um, this is the an orchestrated and slash improv event. Uh, no matter how physical between two performers mm-hmm. and sort of evaluating on, on that level. So. So you're getting caught up in the drama regardless. And that's. Well, if it's a good enough match. <laughs> well, that's what it's so like a movie. Sometimes a movie's not very good and it just does not suck you in at all. Right, right. You know? Which is probably just like a, a, a sports team, like a, a particular game that sometimes might be boring to a sports fan. Well, right? That's, that's right. You hear people talk about like a, a game that is just, uh, like say a, uh, someone, uh, what throw pitches a perfect game in baseball? Sounds good. Like I, that in itself is exciting. The the fact that it's such a rarity to to occur that you want to be there when it happens. I mm-hmm. understand. But the game itself, 
is probably not going to be exciting beyond that possibility. Yeah. Well, so that a lot of drama plays into this and we'll talk uh, more about this uh, in a bit, but this is, I think what caught our imagination so much is that people really feel very strongly, uh, some sports fans, uh, fanatics, really strongly about their teams and identify with them quite a bit. So we wanted to kind of scratch at the surface and see what we could find out about why yeah. people are so committed to this. Right. And then we're both coming at this as kind of an outsider yeah. uh, to sports fandom. But, except for synchronized swimming Well, except teams. for your synchronized swimming team, yeah. yes. But, I mean, the interesting thing about it is that, that while there is a tendency for non-sports fans to sort of categorize, like, non-sports fans and then sports fans as this kind of alien creature, mm-hmm. and and certainly it can be hard to understand what's going on, with obsessive uh, sports fans, especially, but you see people of all walks of life that are either drawn into sports or not. You see women, you see men, you see see people of varying lifestyles mm-hmm. and ethnicities and political beliefs that are either drawn into sports and often hardcore, or it just like they don't have the gene for it or something and right, it doesn't right. click. Yeah. So and um, there definitely needs to be more studies on that, right? Why some people gravitate toward it and some people don't. Yeah, it's always happening with me too. Since I since I'm not a sports person. I am not going to be able to talk about sports with somebody. So there'll be somebody I've known for a while or been hanging out with a little bit. And then suddenly it'll come out that they're into sports in a major way. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, I would not have, have pegged you for that. But it just drives home how you just cannot anticipate who is a secret sports fan and who is not. Well, this is from an, a New York Times article called Sports Psychology. And they say that psychologists have long suspected that many diehard fans are lonely, alienated people searching for self-esteem by identifying with the sports team. But a study at the University of Kansas suggests just the opposite, that sports fans suffer fewer bouts of depression and alienation than do people who are uninterested in sports, which I thought was really interesting. And it makes sense, right, because it's a communal thing for the most part. Usually people are watching with another person or a group of people, and it's a social event. Yeah, like people go to – like you pack a stadium full of people for a uh, football game, Mm -hmm. and – Everybody there, for the most part, has one thing in common, and that is that they like football. Right. Now, and then what maybe like half of them uh, only have a, uh, only have a fandom for one team in common. You know, one half is maybe yeah. supporting one team, half the other. But uh, but even that, that's a large group of people that are really into a particular thing, into a particular team. And it's an instant, you know, like an instant conversation starter, right? Yeah. You can always talk about like, hey, how are, how are the, the troglodytes doing this, this year? Oh, they're doing pretty good. <laughs> I think they're going to beat the, um, uh, the Cornish hens in the finals. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. th- it's instantly something you can talk about in, in the elevator, uh, or, or even in just impassioned debate. Like I remember, uh, Reading, um, I, th- I think, I, yeah, I think I read this uh, where it was uh, Hunter S. Thompson talking about uh, being on the Nixon campaign trail, and at one point finding himself alone with Nixon. Yeah, and these are two you could not ask for two men of such differing tastes and qualities, mm-hmm. but they were both big football fans, like huge football fans, so they were able to talk about football. So the mere fact that sports fandom could unite Hunter S. Thompson and <laughs> Richard Nixon, like like that alone, speaks to the importance of this phenomenon. I have uh, this memory of him, uh, his ashes being shot out of a cannon after he passed. Is that right? Yes, or at least that was the plan. I cannot yeah, recall were, if that came uh, to pass his, or not. His his wish was for that. Anyway, yes, uh, absolutely nuts guy. And you're great. You're right. Uh, sports is, can be a great unifier. Um, but the question is, like, who is exactly watching, you know, sports here? From an ESPN study in 2009 of 219 million U.S. sports 
fans age 12 and up, they found that, uh, you know, this is kind of a duh, college-aged men are major sports TV consumers watching more than three hours of national sports TV each week. And this group is more likely to be watching the events alone, actually on TV, rather than in a group. Among males 25 to 49 with families and careers to consider, sports uh, avidity and sports news TV viewing declines. This kind of makes sense, right? Because priorities, eh, you know, maybe yeah. you can't watch as many sports. And um, when the male 50 and over demographic watches sports with others, it's usually with women. Uh, ESPN says women 50 and over constitute about 30% of its audience in this segment. And then as, as far as women go, for females ages 18, uh, or actually the age of 18 is a demarcation line when sports really tends to drop off. So what that means is that when probably a female quits playing a sport, uh-huh. uh, she may become disinterested in, in watching it on TV or Or she's watching it, it with uh, the parents, with the family. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. yeah. Or with friends. You know? Yeah, yeah. But that age group, they do see sort of a... A fall off, I guess. Yeah, because you're, say, you're like, leaving the house, and then you're 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 pro- you're maybe going off to encounter new friends with different different tastes. Right. So. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, women twenty five to thirty four are the group that are least interested in sports. Uh, thirty five and older begin to pick it back up, and this really interesting. Women fifty and over become bigger sports fans, and their viewing interest increases at a rate much faster than men in this fifty and over group. Huh. And I, my grandmother was a huge sports nut. Yeah. I mean, she could go through the Atlanta Braves. She could, you know, talk about every single one of them and talk about their personal lives. Um, I mean, she would gossip about it in addition to talking about their stats. It was pretty amazing. Uh, but that's sort of, I think this maybe makes sense in a way because, um, as you get older, you're probably a little bit more engaged in TV and sports as a diversion, right? Yeah. And as we'll talk about in a little bit more, um, you get engaged to the point where you actually physically or physiologically are mimicking the actions that someone on TV may be performing. So if your mobility is limited and you see someone out there on the field, it could really give you a surge, right? right. To be watching yeah. this game. Make you, like actually allow you to rise up from your chair like you've been healed by a TV preacher? Yes, I've seen that with my grandmother. Yeah, oh, wow. she just yeah, she just uh, started running around. Uh, <laughs> touchdown t- dance. Yes, touchdown yeah. dance, yeah. Because, yeah, they're always performing touchdowns with the Braves. But um Yeah, she just had her like knitting and just threw it down like a yeah a football. Uh, I've also read uh the sports fandom plays a huge role in uh, the purchase of uh, video game consoles mm-hmm. and the video game industry because as popular as some of these like role playing sci fi fantasy games uh have become. Yeah. Um it's it's really like the sports the sports and the the war games that are really driving uh the systems and really getting the, the, the sales and the downloads. And, and that there's something that to be discussed there as we'll talk, uh, uh, in, uh, later on in this podcast. Yeah. War and sports. There's, there's obviously something going on there. Right? Well, and, and let's talk about in that, uh, in that context, tribalism. Yes. In modern society, some people would say that professional and college athletes play a similar role for a city in the stylized war on a playing field. Okay. So the theory goes, even though professional athletes are mercenaries in every sense, their exploits maybe recreate the intense emotions that some fans might feel that you would probably expect in tribal warfare. Right. So again, the theory is sort of throwing it back to, you know, on an evolutionary basis that this was something that we're hardwired for and we can't help but become engaged in what we see as tribal warfare. One team against another team. Yeah. It's like our city against yours. 
since we since uh, Cincinnati can't actually invade um, Chicago, uh, they can <laughs> they can at least have, right. send a team there to battle the other team. So it becomes kind of a symbolic tribal battle between these two groups, like scratching that itch that uh, that we, that we have for uh, for this kind of competition, for this kind of uh, of violent encounter. Yeah, that Robert uh, Cialdini is a professor of psychology at Arizona State, and he has said, quote, our sports heroes are our warriors. This is not some light diversion to be enjoyed for its inherent grace and harmony. The self is centrally involved in the outcome of the event. Whoever you root for represents you. So then, yeah, there's this idea that, you know, again, that that's you out there on the field. Yeah, I mean, you end up attaching your ego to these uh, these people on these teams. And uh, and they're out there fighting your battle for you. Yeah. And to the extent that, again, you're not just thinking, oh, that that that's kind of like me or I identify with that person. Physiologically, you're becoming very aroused. Um, this is from Charles Hillman, a psychologist now at the University of Illinois. And he found that ardent football fans at the University of Florida experienced extreme physiological arousal when they viewed pictures of Gator football stars making game winning plays, but responded indifferently to pictures of other athletes and teams. Wow. So these become the, the heroes. These become yes. the, uh, the, the icons. Yeah. It's not just a, a sports, uh, athlete. It's my specific sports athlete that I have been following for years that I know all this biographical data about. Um, quote, individuals that are highly identified with teams show extreme arousal compared to the average fan. Among zealous male and female fans, Dr. Hillman found that the level of arousal, which was measured by heart rate, brain waves, and perspiration um, by galvanic response, was comparable to what fans registered when shown erotic photos or pictures of animal attacks. Wow. Well, there you go. Everybody loves a good picture of an erotic animal attack. <laughs> it's I, mean, I mean, I joke, but it actually it brings to mind the um, the old like pulp men's magazine covers that mm-hmm. you would see where it would be like one bare chested guy with like a handgun and a machete fighting off a wild animal. Right. While a scantily clad wom- woman uh, cowered in the, in the in a cave in the corner or something. You know, it's like it's it's everything in one shot. It's uh, it's masculine violence. Right. It's it's, uh, it's the erotic vulnerability. It's it's wild animals and. You know, all, all these things at once in one rush. It's all the bodice ripping, flesh tearing yeah. excitement that you could hope for. Yeah. And then you can have that or you can have football. <laughs> right, right, right. With same reaction, right? right. Uh, or same results. Uh, so, okay. So in a moment here, we're going to talk about men and hormonal changes, but right after this break. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of tomorrow and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. And we're back, and uh, where we're going to look at hormonal changes in sports fans. Yep. You're watching the game, and yep. the game, the game, the, the game is changing you. That's right. I mean, you're not like going through like some sort of like uh, male menopause or anything. Uh, but James Dabbs, a psychologist at Georgia State University, tested saliva samples from different groups of sports fans before and after important games. Um, in particular, he actually took saliva samples from 21 Italian and Brazilian men in Atlanta and uh, before and after Brazil's victory over Italy in soccer's 1994 World Cup. The Brazilians' testosterone rose an average of 28 percent while the Italians' levels dropped by 27%. 
Wow. I mean, these are really, these are significant spikes and drops. Well, it drives home how, how come, um, sports fandom can become such a, an addiction really with many people, you know, right. like to the point where the classic sort of man, uh, story is like the, the couple goes out to a nice dinner and the guy sneaks, so keeps sneaking away to the bar to see, to update the game, right. right? To find out what the game score is, yeah. you know? And this puts that in a lot more context. Like it's not just a guy that's really into something and is kind of a jerk about it yeah. to his date, but he has, he has biological needs that need to be met, uh, during the date. By updates on the uh, World Series game. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's because what's the payoff? If if they're victorious, you get this high high that you get to actually feel for yourself, right? That right. as if you won the game yourself. Uh, of course, the downside is the low low. And um, Doctor Dabs actually gave questionnaires to to various sports fans, um, you know, after the team lost or won, and they found that their self esteem was absolutely correlated with that how that team performed. So they could have a very low opinion of themselves. Um, and a drop in testosterone if their huh. team lost. See, that's inter- it makes me wonder about like fans who support teams that generally lose, that have a really poor record, but they continue yeah. to support like, these really loyal fans. Yeah. Like if, if these are our gods and our heroes and our mythic figures, then I guess it's more in keeping with like the beliefs of the Vikings and, you know, the idea that all oh, the Norse gods will die in the, ba- in the battle of Ragnarok. And I guess that's kind of like fans of the, the Minnesota Vikings, who's right, <laughs> <laughs> whose team, um, According to sports fans, uh, kind of dies in the Battle of Ragnarok uh, regularly on a weekly basis. Well, yeah, some of that, too. Um, they were sort of going back to saying that the, the fans are really empathetic. Mm-hmm. It's probably not something that people normally see. When you see someone screaming out on TV, you don't necessarily say, oh, that person is just full of empathy. But they really if you identify with that team, even if they keep losing, then, you know, you still have this hope. Yeah. No matter what the data says, <laughs> and I guess you, know, you get that, to, that your team could pull it off. Yeah, and you and you still you do get a number of uh, benefits out of it. A, there's still the community, yes, the fans. Yeah, I feel like there's this sense of uh, of like long endured suffering. You get to talk about, oh, I'm a I'm a fan of the the Vikings or or, or in any other team that doesn't have a spectacular winning record. But you get to say, oh, I'm I'm a I'm I'm a fan of this of this team, our team, man. We're not doing so great this year. I mean, again, it's still an instant conversation t- starter. And you you kind of get the prestige of being a loyal fan, like not a f- fly-by-night uh, fair-weather fan who's yeah. just really into the, the Braves or whoever when they happen to be uh, doing really well or when yeah. they're going to go to the World Series. You're not just leaping on board the on the train when the, when the party's going on. You're there during the long, suffering seasons when nothing's getting done. Well, this is from uh, Boston.com. Carl Crawford, he was talking about his experience, and he said, in many cases, research has shown that tribal connection goes back to a fan's childhood when parents or siblings encouraged him or her to root for a particular team. Uh, Jonathan Gray, editor of Fandom, Identities and Communities in a Mediated World, compared the inheritance of sports fandom to the way in which preference for a particular soap opera tends to be passed down within families from one generation to the next. Completely, at least in my family, this is true. My grandmother mm-hmm. had her preference and she took care of us sometimes. And so that's what we watched, right? Gray says it's something that you can all talk about, just like what you're saying. By the same token, he said love of the socks or the Bruins can be imprinted on a child at an early age and grow from mere imitation to a way to pay homage to one's family or school or neighborhood. Or love of the pretzels. Remember that <laughs> that high school team? No. A, a listener wrote oh, about that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The pretzels. Yeah. Go yeah. pretzels. Yeah. 
Um, but come in, if you can root for socks, I, I guess I've never really understood that. Are they socks? You, how do you root for a sock? Let me root for something like a... Well, look, you can make a sock into a sock puppet very easily, and then you can to imagine it, it being a, having some sort of humanness to it, right? Okay, I, can, right? I can get that. But, but th- you don't see fans doing that, do you? No, I, it would that they, they did. I, I might get into that if everyone <laughs> was watching the game through a sock. But... But then there's like a Georgia Tech here in uh, in Atlanta. They have the, mm-hmm. the yellow jackets. Right. And uh, I can get behind the – all right, a yellow jacket. That's a wasp. Wasps are really cool. They're mm-hmm. neat predators. They're sleek. They have a, they pat, they're have they packing a sting. All right. That's a cool mascot. But then I see signs that are like, go jackets. Like how can you remove the yellow? Because now you're just talking about jackets. I'm just picturing – That's just being cool, man. I'm just picturing you, a bunch of like that, Fonzie jackets. That's uh, the in lingo. Who's going to win between a Fonzie jacket and like a lion or even mm. a badger? Fonzie's jacket. Are you kidding me? Like Fonzie's jacket could beat a sock. I could see that, but, but not like an actual, uh, sentient being. I, I don't, I don't know about that. I think that you don't understand the, the powers of Fonzie there. Yeah. It's, per- it's perhaps, pretty, perhaps. Yeah. That would be an intense fight. Um, but as you can see, there's a lot that is bundled up in this issue. Let's see. Here's another really interesting bit of information that says the fans connection to the game includes an emotional component from the amygdala a memory component from the hippocampus, and some empathy from the prefrontal cortex as the subject feels some relation to the player or the other fans on the, on his side. Some of the sensory motor areas light up, too, as if the subject is imagining himself as, say, like the shooter in a basketball game. I think that's amazing. Um, and a lot of that actually correlates with what we found out about mi- mirror neurons, right? Right. So mirror neurons are a class of brain cell. They're found in several parts of the brains, and they fire in response to chains of actions linked to intentions. All right. Okay. So uh, there is in the New York Times, the, the article, Cells That Read Minds, they found that when you see uh, somebody perform an action, such as picking up a baseball, you automatically s- simulate that action in your own brain. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, it's the, it's the reason that we're able to get into like even fictional characters, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're reading what a character's doing, the actions that, that they're engaging in. And on a certain level, you're becoming that person. I actually uh, read that experiment show that when you read a novel, you memorize positions of objects from the narrator's point of view. Huh. Which I thought, well, that is amazing that you're creating this blueprint of this fictional world. Wow. And that's, I think that's especially true in, I mean, it depends on the writer. Some writers are not exactly uh, into giving you a whole lot of detail. Right. But uh, take a novel like uh, Alan Robe Grillet's uh, Jealousy, mm-hmm. which in, takes entire, the entire book. Um, this is going to, people are going to run out and buy this when I explain this. Uh, the entire book is a gentleman on a banana plantation sitting in a room, staring out the window, trying to decide in his own head whether his younger wife is having an affair with another plantation owner. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a lot of it. Alan Roguelet was really into the details. And this book is like basically him just going over the details in the room, the view from the porch, the stain on the wall where he mm-hmm. killed a centipede, and, <laughs> uh, and, and just trying to figure out and not being able to because he doesn't have enough information to actually come to an answer. So the whole book is just his, his mental anguish over this unanswerable question and his observations of the room. And by, certainly by... Certainly by the end of it, but 10 pages into the book, you already have this really clear picture of the space. Mm -hmm. And even now, I haven't read it in years, but I can definitely picture that room that that guy is sitting in, that I am sitting in. And that's another interesting thing. It doesn't use the word he or the man or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alan Roguelet writes this book as if you are the the person, but without saying you. Yeah. He just describes. He's leaving it open ended in terms of coloring it 
the perception, right? Like you get the, the raw data. Right, right. Yeah. I was just thinking too about uh, when we've talked about this before in, in different contexts, but when you enter a room, automatically what you start seeing is actually your brain trying to figure out like the dimensions of a room. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily perceiving it through your eyes, like your brain is constructing it for you. So it would make sense that if you're reading a text or you're watching someone play baseball, that you would start to see all of these different angles. Um, and even if you're playing pool, right? Right. I mean, this is a game of mathematics. You're trying to predict what's going to happen, what the outcome is going to be if, you know, person A shoots this into that pocket. Well, it, it comes, it reminds me again of, of pro wrestling though, in this scenario. Pro wrestling, to, in in many cases, it's it's like one dude versus another dude mm-hmm. in a ring, all right. And there there's this staged battle that takes place. Yeah. And there are various scenarios that can go down with one on one fighting. You have like a an underdog against a far more dominant oppressor. Sometimes he is squashed by that dominant oppressor. Sometimes he manages to score a victory, that rush of that underdog victory against mm-hmm. overwhelming odds. Mm-hmm. In other cases, it's individuals that are, that are tightly matched in ability that end up having a very c- competitive battle. And then in other cases, it's like the, the individual that you're rooting for is like so overpowered that he's just blowing through uh, opponents uh, with ease. Right. And I can see as a consumer of this particular media, you end up, uh, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes uh, or in the laced boots of the individual. Uh, you know, it's like a simplification of so many things in one's life. Like, mm-hmm. oh, there are overwhelming forces in my life, but here's this dude overcoming an overwhelming force that just happens to be wearing tiny, shiny pants. Well, you know what the interesting part about that is if you are, um, if you are more engaged by the shiny pants, laced up boots person that you're identifying with than say, your neighbor, mm-hmm. you probably have more active mir- mirror neurons than your neighbor does, and you're more empathetic. Huh. Well, I uh, L- Lucha Libre is, a, is another thing I have to mention real quick. This is the Mexican wrestling. And they'll have the big <laughs> match where two opposing wrestlers, a good guy and a bad guy. Is this the one where they wear the crazy... Uh, yeah, the crazy mask. Yeah. But you'll have a, a Tecnico and a Rudo, a good guy and a bad guy, mm-hmm. and they'll fight each other in a big match where the loser is unmasked. He yeah. loses his mask, and he has to reveal his face and his identity to the world. And I've seen some American fans who have uh, who've complained about, oh, well, these are always predictable. You always know that who's going to win in this particular match. Mm-hmm. And I was reading uh, uh, some commentary. This may have been on the Death Valley Driver board, but uh, but someone was pointing out that was a little more in touch with uh, with Mexican fandom uh, of, of Lucha Libre, and they pointed out, well. It's like a, um, it's like a, p- a play being acted out. It's like if you were to go see a religious epic mm-hmm. act- acted out, be that the Passion of the Christ or the Ramayana or something, you know, yeah. some sort of big epic. The actors are going to be different, but the, but the ultimate message is the same. And that's what people really get into, the telling of that tale. Mm-hmm. And so with this particular match, yeah, the, uh, the, the winner may not be in doubt, but the tale being told is what people are connecting with. So it's cathartic. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I and I, I feel it's the same way with uh, with organized sports, and because certainly the the same uh, situations I talked about, like a dominant force crushing its opponent. Mm-hmm. Fans of really successful teams or very talented teams, they enjoy that week after week. Oh man, we crushed the uh, Cornish Inns this uh, last Sunday. Wasn't that amazing? Well, not only that too, but you've probably, I mean, you've got a history with the Cornish Hens. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, maybe you, you and your family have followed them for years and years and you have all this biographical data that's just matrixed in your mind. And so you, yeah, of course you feel like this is someone in your own family yeah. that you're rooting for. And then if they're, if they're not very good and suddenly they have that chance to overcome the, um, the, the oppressor, if they, you know, they get, and if they score that underdog victory, I mean, oh, that's yeah. when you go out and you tear stuff down in the streets and, 
you know, take the goalpost. Yeah. Yeah. This is a really interesting thing that we found out too. It's about emotion and memory. And, uh, it's a, a study done by Duke University. And I find it interesting for two reasons. One, researchers at Duke University were trying to figure out an ethical way to study overwhelmingly positive and negative emotions mm-hmm. without like really putting the screws to someone and messing with their heads. Yeah, because you don't want to go to prison for your research. <laughs> no, yeah. no, for your research. So they came up with the idea of, oh, basketball fans, we've got Chapel Hill here and we've got Duke University. It's, there's an intense rivalry here. We've got all these basketball fans. Let's get some vetted fanatics in here basketball nuts people and run some tests and run some MRI on them and see how they respond, how their memory responds to these games. So they got fans from both sides and they had them watch the game, the same game three times. And then they put them in the MRI and they showed them clips. And right before someone was about to shoot, for instance, they stopped the clip and then they tested their memory. And what they found is that if their team had been winning or um, this was a winning shot, their memory was so much better than if it, it, you know, if the person failed to get the basket in or whatnot. And, you know, the correlation is that your memory is really going to be informed by your emotional state at that very moment. Which, you know, has all sorts of implications and things like PTSD and uh, other areas in our lives where we're going through a traumatic experience or a happy experience. The oh, way that we po- remember post- Post-traumatic stress. Yes. I was thinking public displays of affection for some reason. Did I say? No, no. You said the right one. Okay. But I was imagining like sports fans that are so they're like, oh, my goodness, we won. And they immediately smooch the fan next to them. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that actually happens. It might lot, happen. But, it know. might happen if you're American in, in Italy. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's always a lot of smooching. And a lot of uh, sports going on. It's a nation of lovers, yeah. Yeah. So there you have it, sports fandom. Our attempts to sort of understand it a little, but we'll probably have to call on you guys to give us a little more in-depth analysis from the sports fans themselves, because I know some of you guys are sports fans, and you probably have some insight about this. So if you're listening to this podcast, and then you're going to catch the big game, uh, immediately after or the, or the, or the weekend after, uh, take some of this information with you. Mm-hmm. Do a little self analysis. Let us know. Yeah. You know? I also want to throw this little tidbit out there too. Um, and some of this research about mirror neurons and sports, you know, really putting yourself in, in the other person's place. Uh, it came up several times that this could be a really good explanation for porn. Oh, well, okay. I just thought I'd throw that out there because I'm sure someone has thought to themselves, why is porn like catnip for humans? There you go. Okay. Well, we'll we'll think about that as well. Yeah. Cool. Well, let me uh, reach into the listener mailbag here and pull out a couple of digital correspondences here. First, we heard from listener Amanda. Amanda writes and says, uh, Hello, my name is Amanda, and I recently listened to your podcast about imaginary friends and thought I would share a recent experience with you. Like a lot of kids, I had an imaginary friend when I was little. Her name was Maria, and she was, looking back, fairly nondescript as imaginary friends go. She was uh, a normal human little girl, a little older than myself. I don't remember what happened to her, but at some point as I grew up, she simply wasn't a part of my life anymore. That would be fairly normal and not worth sending an email about if not for what happened next. When I was around 30, she abruptly made a short-lived return to my life. She had grown up and appeared to be in her early to mid-30s and informed me that she had lost track of me all those years ago and was dropping back in to check on me. Uh, She then left again after a few minutes, and I haven't seen her since. I have no idea what this says about my mental state at the time, but I used the event as a starting point for my 2009 NANOWRIMO novel entry, which turned out to be the first novel I completed. Uh, Keep up the great work. I always enjoy your podcast. So, yes, indeed, congratulations on on finishing that book. And uh, and certainly, 
uh, I think this podcast will drop in November. So if you have an, a, a novel kicking around in your head and you really want to, you've been wanting to write it, maybe this is the time to do it. You can check out, uh, just do a search for N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O or like National Writing Month uh, November. You should be able to find the, uh, some details on that. Uh, and we have another listener mail here from Derek. Derek writes in and says, Robert and Julie, why I wouldn't go so far as to say I still have an imaginary friend as an adult, my youthful illusionary companion is still a presence in my life. When I was a kid growing up as a military brat, I chose as my imagination, imaginary friend the constellation Orion. Uh, whenever he was in the sky, I would talk to him and discuss my problems with him. And obviously, in my mind, I still personify it as a him. Still, when I find myself burdened or stressed, I will occasionally look into the sky and talk to my old friend. Another place where I think you'll find a lot of people with imaginary friend-like behavior is in traditional role-playing games like Dungeons and & Dragons. Um, and again, for anyone who isn't familiar with this, uh, I believe we have an article on this. If you go to HowStuffWorks.com yeah. and search for Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeons & Dragons in the classic sense is like pen and paper to keep track of the numbers, rolling mm-hmm. dice, and then everything else takes place in your head as, a, as an imagine, imagined encounter between uh, you and your party members against uh, you know demons and orcs and whatever. Right, w- within your skill set that right. your character's allotted, right? Yeah. And, uh, Not that I haven't played. <laughs> oh, you've played? Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I have played way back in the day, too. We'll have to do a podcast on that. Anyway, um, Derek continues. He says, I've spoken to many players of these games, and many have experiences of being surprised at the choices that their characters made, despite the fact that they, are, of course, are completely in control of that character's action. Thank you so much for uh, entertaining me every week, Derek. And indeed, yeah, that's it's kind of. I remember in the the Imaginary Friends podcast, we we briefly mentioned like fictional characters, mm-hmm. like as you're writing them, and you kind of reach this sort of surfboard point right. where you feel like you're not completely in control of the board or the story or the character anymore, and it's kind of propelled by its own energy, and you're at least partially aboard for the ride, and you mm-hmm. don't know what's going to happen next. So um, I, I never reached that point myself playing Dungeons and Dragons because I most of my playing was like in junior high and scout trips and stuff. Yeah, I played with my brother. And- as his friends, so I don't oh, think wow. I um, was able to. What was your character? It was like the tree nymph. The tree nymph. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, they, but I wasn't allowed to be like a wizard or anything. Oh, you had to be a tree nymph, right? In order to play with them. So, I might have some psychological issues from that that I'd oh. like to to work out. That was, but, yeah, that yeah. was that was kind of sexist. Totally. Yeah. I, I was always an, I tried to it's be my a glass ceiling, but. What? I was always a necromancer, or tried to be. Of course you were. Stuff. But you know, we should. what we should do is we should bring in a dungeon master for an episode of <laughs> Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and you get to be whatever you want. You can be a warrior or a wizard. You and, know, I'm about to cry will, right now. I would love <laughs> to do this. And the, the dungeon master will guide us through okay. an alarmingly you know, short dungeon <laughs> uh, adventure. So. I'm on board. All right. Well, hey, uh, if anyone else has anything to share with us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to check us out on, on Twitter and Facebook. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And, uh, and again, I, I feel like I should stress, if you haven't been to the HowStuffWorks.com website in a little bit, do check it out because we have yeah. this brand new homepage that's pretty amazing. Like, it's just, uh, it's, it's just, it's a lot more engaging than the previous uh, homepage. It's, you instantly are, are, are hit with like a number of different articles and, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's organized in a really cool yeah, way. Yeah, the organization is great. There are different tabs where you can click on. If, if you're always wondering, I wonder what the newest article on House of Works is, there's a tab for new articles, so you can see them as they pop up. Yeah. So check that out as well. And, uh, you know, I'm about to give the call out for our email address, 
But we just got a piece of physical mail in the actual... An actual snail mail. Snail mail. And it's pretty awesome. I'm going to try to describe this postcard. Um, it looks to be like a, a Taiwanese wellness spa in which reflexology is being practiced. And it, it's a sort of <laughs> photorealist shot, I guess you could call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty great. And it comes uh, to us from Sean... And it says, hi, Robert and Julie, greetings from Taiwan. I've been listening to you since Science Stuff. Thank you for producing a very educated show. So thank you, Sean. Um, yeah. That, we really appreciate that. And Matt, our producer, uh, appreciates that as well. Yeah. And if, if you actually want to send us snail mail, um, I'm not going to give the address out here because it's... You I've got it. Oh, you got it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't know it unless it, okay. I wasn't holding the well, postcard. Well, well, first let me say that you can find the address in the contact page on yeah. HowStuffWorks.com. But if you want to write it down real quick, it's... If you are old-fashioned and you happen to have a pen and paper, here it is, 3350 Peachtree Road, Northeast, Suite 1500, Atlanta, Georgia, 30326, USA. And nothing living, seriously. Don't send us anything yeah, living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that never turns out well. Unless it's imaginary. Imaginary living things, yeah, so I guess yeah. they're welcome. But. Yeah. Okay, and so the other uh, sort of traditional way to get in touch with us would be to send us an email at belowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.